You are listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio based or banner ads, but on a case by case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at one of at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also is a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now digital noise time. Bunch of little guys We never get any fanfare. How come there's never any fanfare anymore? I need a kazoo. I need a kazoo. Just the I can't do the little the buzz. Yeah. The kazoo is the only thing in the world that makes an accordion feel like it's not totally horrible. Well, like, I, I love kazoos. I think they're cute. And I think it's fun when people use them as, like, trumpets and horns. But then I realize that it's an actual legitimate instrument. And then I go, oh, no, that's silly. <laughs> Some people actually think of it as an instrument. These people should learn to play an actual instrument. I'm sorry. Did we just lose all our kazoo enthusiasts from the site i don't do you play a kazoo or do you just hum and a kazoo makes it sound like it came from a hanna-barbera cartoon i think you blow into it i don't know and then there's a recorder which is an instrument and not well that's a flute basically it's like a cheap flute i think that's weird too that they call it a recorder like i don't get cheap instruments basically i think the naming conventions are weird Okay. This is the hill I'm going to die on in 2020. Fuck all the world burning around us. Damn it, they shouldn't be called recorders. Meanwhile, the moment we're done, Aaron pulls out his instrument. <laughs> theremin. I, I appreciate that you think I have the skill to play a theremin. Dude, it's the hardest instrument to play in the world, I swear to God. I had a friend who had one, and he's like, oh, go ahead and try it. And I was like, Jesus Christ, how do you play this? He's like, I've had this thing for two years. I still can't play it. No, I've been rewatching Hannibal, and Hannibal, of all people, goes off on a bit about how the theremin is the purest instrument because you can play tones that no other instrument can play. Mm. Yeah, If Hannibal likes it, it must be good. I guess. I, you know, I wouldn't argue with Hannibal for reasons other than him being correct. But we are here to review movies, home releases, in fact, Blu-rays and DVDs, Aaron, my partner in crime, Aaron Tired Mother Fracker Woodle. Aaron, that's your your title you put on your screen because, by the way, if you're a subscriber now, you can watch the video version of this. Isn't that exciting? Get to actually see the images of the movies go by. Oh, what? Is that what the movie is? Is that what it looks like? Oh, my God. Now I know what to click on. Well, there you go. Are you super tired? I am exhausted. Uh, I, I've been, it's been really crazy at work. And then my wife's school was, is forced to be open right now because it's a small business and we don't have a choice. Um, and it's having to expand so that we can have enough business to potentially pay teachers and keep the lights on. So I, I'm basically a single parent right now because my wife is focusing all of her attention on her business. Props to the single parents out there. You guys are doing God's work. I, I um, hear you, brother. I'm I'm but, super tired, too. I had one of those days as well. I realized as I was looking at your head on the screen that the top half of your head was starting to melt to the left. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or the acid you took earlier is starting to hit. Dude, I, I worry about that every day. I'm like, what is so many, oh, man, I'm not I'm not scared of tripping other than I don't have 12 hours to spend on that shit. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember those days where it's like, you know, I'm kind of enjoying this, but I also have work in the morning and I don't know when this is going to stop. Well, 
So it's not to go on for 12 hours. Let's go ahead, regardless of LSD, let's go ahead and get into the movies. Actually, we're going to start off with kind of an easy one because we talked about this before. Weirdly, once again, Blue Underground is reissuing one of their discs that they put out like a year ago with a 4K Blu-ray release that you're like, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Only now they're re-releasing it on 4K 4K for the New York Ripper which is a Lucio Fulci film that, if I remember correctly, we both came down on the side of going, okay, it's horrific to watch, but we enjoyed it. I was I was mixed on it. I have found that Fulci goes a little hard for me, and um, like there were parts of it that I appreciated, and I got into the story of it, and I will... I know that there is a stated and intentional reason for the duck quacking, but it, it, the duck killed me. Like every time he started screaming in his Donald duck voice, I just completely lost it cracking up and I couldn't take the movie seriously. I yeah, also which is, remember yeah. it's one of the rare few movies where I've like live texted you and I live texted you the gore scenes where I would be sitting here going like, this isn't too gory. And, Right about the time I hit send on that, like somebody got stabbed in the vagina with a broken bottle. I was just like, oh my God, what? That's Fulci. Yeah, <laughs> Fulci films. I mean, he's done, uh, you probably, if you're like, I don't know who Fulci is, I don't know who New York, what the New York Ripper is. Okay, but you've at least seen scenes from his film Zombie 2 or just Zombie, depending on where you found it, which is the shark fighting a zombie. Uh, he's did a lot of really famous films in horror, like City of the Living Dead or Gates of Hell, uh, The Beyond, The House by the Cemetery. We've reviewed all of these on the site, pretty much. Actually, I think I did them all, in fact, with you. <laughs> you, you didn't do all of them. Apologies. I don't think you did The House on the House by the Cemetery. You're right. Uh, no, I didn't. I did the others. No, I did that with John. I think I'm doing that with John coming up because they also are re-releasing that one on 4K. But the New York Ripper is 1982. And yes, as Aaron mentioned, the killer for some reason makes a Donald Duck quacking sound, which would be hysterical if it, he wasn't really gorily, brutally murdering women in this thing. I mean, and like, yes, by today's standard, this is deeply offensive stuff, right? Like yes. it's misogynist. It's all that, but it's what makes us interesting. I mean, other than the fact that Fulci films probably had gore that outdoes gore, even by today's standards in terms of like realistic and scary. You know, I'm, I'm but, trying to remember if I got this confused with another, but I, my memory of my the one thing I can't forget about this is that it's it's basically a remake of Fritz Lang's M, but <laughs> told through this exploitation lens. Like if you followed the story beat for beat, it is M. The only difference is at the end of M, it's the parents of all the people who the serial killer has murdered who rise up and kill him as well. Uh, and, and here instead it's, it's this maybe hallucination, maybe the dead come back to get him. But like, it's, it's basically a remake of one of the most important uh, films in film history. It's in the criterion collection. I kind of dig that. And M is better. There's no question. No, you know, M is don't you, M is the kills are cool. Like, like it's, the, it's well shot. It's absurd. It's got great score. And, you know, I mean, you either like Fulci or you don't. I mean, I no one would blame you for not. This is one of the films I'd say, yeah, this is a Fulci you want to see if you're a fan of his. The new 4K edition, though, is it worth it? Well, I mean, it's certainly a little bit fixed up over the Blu-ray, as if you have a 4K TV and you're playing on a 4K player, you're going to get the maximum amount of the 4K upgrade, which was already upgraded for the Blu-ray, but your system you were playing it on only showed you so much. You lost here the soundtrack disc, which came with that. Now you get a remastered trailer, whatever that's worth, and a new commentary by author and critic Troy Howarth okay, talking about cool. the production of this. But then it comes with the Blu-ray disc that has all the bonus features that were on there. In fact, I think the commentary is exactly the same on, on, the, on both. I'm not really sure. So you're not really getting a lot extra other than... You know, if you want the best possible quality copy of this, which I do in most of the films that I really like, and this is a film I'll rewatch again, then yeah, this is the one you upgrade to. And honestly, I don't even have a CD player anymore. So yeah. having the CD disc really doesn't do that much for me. But I think this is a solid movie for super big gore horror fans. It's well worth uh, 
checking out. And if you want, you can listen to our original review where we go much more in depth uh, for Digital Noise episode 222, where Aaron and I talked about this thing. So let's move on to something new. <laughs> and that is, well, not new. The film is not new. It's 1995. That's Shanghai Triad. But it's by director Zhang Yimou, who is a big, big deal. If you've ever seen the film Hero, which I'd say is neck and neck with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the best uh, wuxia film ever made. He also did uh, House of the Flying Daggers, which is kind of my personal pick of his. Shadow. Uh, Raise the Red Lantern, the Great Wall. The Great Wall. Everybody's got to take a paycheck every once in a while, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like he's he's a director who's known for his use of color and also for working internationally as well as within China, which is a hard thing to pull off in modern world. True. Uh, now this stars Gong Li, who is known as we mentioned. She in Mulan, she plays the remake. She plays the witch queen that flies around and shit. She is actually I didn't know this till recently. She's known as the greatest actress in China. She is say, there the best character in Mulan, so that makes sense. She's Meryl Streep basically in yeah. in China. But this is not known as one of Yamo's greatest films, like the one to go and oh you got to check this out. It's definitely one. Of, it's not. It's okay. It's a criminal underworld of 1930s Shanghai. Uh, it takes place over the space of about a week. So it's I, like a. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. I really dug this movie. This is one of two movies that feel very similar, where uh, the director is trying to mesh a crime movie with a different kind of film, and I think both movies end up succeeding more than they don't. Although both of them have issues with the ending and so basically this follows a 12 or 13 year old it doesn't really matter boy from the country who's been brought into shanghai to serve as a servant to the triad boss's mistress played by gomley and it's essentially just kind of this fly on the wall look at the lives of this effectively concubine uh, who is underworld royalty, as well as the life of the servants who work in this community. So, like, it's this, here's this slice of life that exists within all the crime films you've seen. And so that's the angle they try for it. And the part that works is that the actors do a great job. The characters are interesting. It's a beautiful film. His use of color is great, although he uses a little bit too much uh, fog for my taste in this film. Uh, and, and I, he like, he shoots everything from eye level and from the point of view of the kids. So like, it feels very confusing and imposing as you go through, uh, about one of the only things that really ended up not working for me about this movie is the actual main character. The boy who the movie is about is kind of a cipher. He doesn't really have a character. He's more of just an audience avatar so that we can see the interesting characters that are Gong Lee and the other gangsters and the, well, yeah, the uncle Lou, who is his, his, you know, so-called uncle. That's a henchman for the triad boss in question, who is involved with Gong Lee. Gong Lee is by far the most interesting character in this and her arc and the way that she's basically just trying to survive in this really complicated situation where people are trying to kill each other and her position is not assured. Her boss might get killed at any, any day. And that would mean her, she's not safe. She's trying to find a way around this. And it gets, I mean, in some levels, this is when you take away all of the, the inherently Chinese set design and costumes, this almost is an American style gangster film, right? Just not told in the way that you're used to. It, it it feels like this is a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern movie <laughs> that is like a side piece to an American gangster film. Because like all the trappings are there. The gangsters are there. There's a betrayal. There's warring families. There's never a shooting. There's never a death on screen. It's well, not till all... close to the end. I don't even remember you actually flat out seeing someone die then. You just know someone dies, but there's never like a gunfight. I don't think there's sure. ever a gun that's that's fired on screen. And and so like it, it's it's far more about what is it like to 
be that fly on the wall innocent wall. Oh, you know what? There is. There's a shooting in the very beginning. Um, That's true. I forgot about that. But yeah, it's it's more about the human human side of things than it is about, like, the gang side of things. And honestly, this is why you're watching this is to watch Gong Li be beautiful and elegant and interesting, which she is all of those things here. And you're watching Zhang Yimou's, you know, sumptuous filmmaking style, which it really is. And you're right. The whole thing kind of feels like it was... Olin Milled, as I like to call it. Like, it was like, let's just put this under the white light. Let's put this with a little bit of mist over it. I, I, I hate Very it. You funny, know, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the best of his films, but it is well worth seeing nonetheless. The Blu-ray w- came out from Film Movement, which puts out a lot of just straight, straight to DVD stuff. But this one was like, okay, this is a bi- it's a big deal to get a Yamu film, so it's like we'll put this out on Blu-ray. There's not a lot extra here. There's like a 20 minute bonus feature with a critic who is interpreting various scenes from the film. Then there's the trailer and trailer for other films from Film Movement, which, like I said, are usually a mixed bag. But I, I do have to recommend this overall yeah. if you like Chinese films you know, and aren't in it exclusively for martial arts or heroic bloodshed, then this is a treat. Yeah, I think that if you go in knowing that even though this has the trappings of a gangster film, it is not a gangster film. It is a period piece human interest with gangster trappings. And and if you go in knowing that, I think you can really find a lot to enjoy here. But if you do go in going like, yeah, this is a a gangster film with triads and war, you're not going to have fun. It's not that kind of movie. Well, our next film also is, you know, it's Chinese-American, is the way to describe it. It's directed by Sassy Seeley, who I believe is a Chinese-American uh, director. She she lives in New York City, and f- although she has apparently, according to IMDb, a southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> but she has directed a number of things, including TV movies and shorts, uh, episodes of various shows. Uh, she's worked on Fresh on the Boat. But Lucky Grandma is definitely the one that you're like, OK, you're going to get more work out of this because it, our site reviewed this. We had a screener squ- squad review and those guys went crazy for this. We're like, oh, my God, this movie is so good. So when I saw they were offering it on Blu-ray, I was like, hell, yeah, I want to check that shit out. And I am very grateful that I did. This actress who plays the lucky grandma in question, uh, Sai Chin. Once again, I hate that I'm probably saying that wrong. T-S-A-I Chin is phenomenal. She's living by herself. She's a widow. She sometimes sees her son and his family. Uh, but her life is kind of boring. She's chain smokes. She exercises the pool. She prays. She watches soap operas. She goes to see a fortune teller who, of course, well, she, to her, that's her doctor. <laughs> well, and, uh, and most importantly, her son and his wife have the conversation of, look, you're getting old and we don't think you can live by yourself. So we want you to give up your independence and come move in with us. Right. So. The huge thing that kind of triggers everything else. Well, and in fact, her fortune teller tells her that she's going to get really lucky on this one day. So she goes to says, fuck it, I'm gonna take everything I got and go to the casino. And she wins huge. And then she loses it all, as you do when you're going and deciding that your lucky your lucky day has come. Usually it has until it hasn't. But on the way home, she's sitting there. What went wrong? How did this happen? And the guy sitting next to her on the bus fucking dies. And she's like, what the hell? And then notices that his bag is filled with cash. And she's like, hooray, my luck is here after all. Well, guess what? That money does not come free of charge. He was a gangster. The gangsters find a very easy time figuring out, you know, who was sitting next to this guy on the the bus and who suddenly has lots of money. Like, we want the cash back. But it's also she's an old grandma. And this, you know, they're like, what are we what are we supposed to do here? Everybody feels very awkward about this scenario that they're in except grandma who's like fuck off i'm spending my money and it also feels like it's not just correct me if i'm wrong but like it it's not just the people who she stole from it's it's other gangs come for her as well and it ends up that like there was there was basically deceit and betrayal happening when she literally had this money fall into her lap so no one knows what the hell is going on and and my favorite thing about that bit is that she she basically has thousands and thousands of dollars land in her lap. And the first thing she does is go grocery shopping and buy a new light for her apartment. And I'm just like, 
I've never seen a greater condemnation of the American way of life as we are right now today than I just got thousands and thousands of dollars, so I'm going to go buy food. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that would be my first take as well. That's I'd okay, be like, mine oh. too. <laughs> yeah. I'd be but, like, yeah, oh, so like, I need to get my oil changed. <laughs> so, so gangsters show up. She she ends up hiring the local protection racket to give her a bodyguard. And it ends up being a movie really about how she deals with these continued interruptions. And like, you can see her just wanting to go, look, I just want to take this money and I just want to live out the rest of my life and calm and quiet and be with my family. Just leave me the fuck alone, please. And yeah, she nobody just, will. Yeah. And, and well, of course not. It's a bag full it, of millions of what, yen dollars. I don't know. It's and, dollars. They're, they're yeah. in New York. Yeah. They're in New York. And and she's like, hey, I'm old. Leave me alone. (laughs) It it effortlessly shifts between there'll be a very comedic bit to a very serious bit where you're really fearing for both the character's life and the people who she's met and gotten close to. Like, like, this was one of the hallmarks of the stack you got me. I adored it. Yeah, me too. Uh, it really starts to take off when she does, in fact, decide, I need a bodyguard. And pay. she's like, well, who's the cheapest one you get? So she gets a kind of fat, tall guy, Big Pong, played by Hizau Yuan Ha, who is wonderful in this. And they are just so charming together. She kind of adopts him for all extents and purposes, forms a relationship with him, you know, as a grandma, grandson sort of relationship. They're not having sex. <laughs> And it's charming as fuck. This whole movie, I was like, I'm laughing at it a lot of the time. I'm like you said, I'm worried for them. I'm charmed by it. And I do deep. I think this is one of those films that is going to make almost anybody who watches it happy. And and it moves. It, it felt a lot like, um, oh, God, what's that? I'm blanking. Uh, there's always like one or two indie comedies that just have this rhythm and flow, like kind of like Paddington had this kinetic energy to it where the camera was always moving. It was never jittery or crazy, but it always just like took you with it and had a bounce to it. And mm-hmm. the combination of soundtrack and the way she shoots this movie where she's almost always just like a medium or a close shot on the actual grandma. Uh, it's a very exciting film. I dig this. I'd recommend this to most anyone who can handle reading a subtitle. And I really hope that this lead actress, Sai Chin, appears in a lot more stuff. I mean, obviously she's older, so I don't know how much more stuff she's got in front of her. But she is terrific here. She's had a long career, 66 credits. Yeah, Uh, she's, She's not an unseen lady. I think she was in the Joy Luck Club, in fact. Yeah, she's been in a bunch of stuff. She was Aunt Wu in Avatar The Last Airbender. Ooh, shit. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I think she was in a James Bond movie. She was in a, well, she plays Chinese girl in You Only Live Twice. So, you know, I was whatever. about to say, no. uh, please don't be You Only Live Twice. Oh, wait, no. Casino Royale, she played Madame Wu. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I remember okay. Anyway, point being is she's great. She's one of those people you've probably seen her in something. So you'll see this and go, oh, she looks familiar. Where have I seen her from? Well, probably a lot of stuff, but she's terrific here. This is a very strong film. Uh, The Blu-ray here is from Kino. There's an okay amount of extras. There's seven behind the scenes featurettes that are all just that very much featurettes. Uh, They're short, just little focuses on just surface level bits of, of, of aspects of the production whatever it's it's not the sort of film that you're interested in extras unless they were doing something super in depth i would have loved to see an interview with just the director and the lead actress sitting down and talking about the film but that's not here i just want to know more about her life in real life (laughs) Like, like just give me a documentary about her as a person yeah i did i think we both found this absolutely charming and i'm happy about that well, I guess we'll. Oh, and I wanted to say one last thing about this. This is really a terrific example how really key casting and a super engaging score can take something that could have been very dry and probably was on paper and elevate it enormously. Because the score here is vibrant and active and really just gets you going. Yeah, th- that was that kineticness that I was talking about. It just it pulls you along. You never get bored. You're always ready for the next scene. Well, a film that is the exact opposite of all of those things we were just talking about is another art film that came out called A White White Day from Film Movement. Now, let me be clear. This has nothing to do with uh, 
white supremacy or anything like no, that. It's, no, no. you know, white because they're way up in like a Scandinavia, basically. And oh, man, right, this so. film described itself as like a thriller. And I'm like, what was supposed to be thrilling you? Okay. What did I miss? Tell the so, plot, Aaron. You have to tell the plot on this one. First of all, I feel like it, so this was the first movie from this stack that I watched. Oh and no! I, I feel like all the other movies that we've talked about today, except for of course the New York Ripper, uh, kind of serve as like a lesson for what the filmmaker should have done or how he should have approached this. So basically, this movie it, it follows an ex Icelandic policeman who is a grandfather whose wife was killed uh, X number of time ago. I don't know; it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, she's dead, and she died in a car crash. And he is now trying to build a farmhouse uh, for his daughter and he's hanging out with his granddaughter and he kind of, while going through a box of his wife's stuff, he abruptly decides based on, I don't even know that his wife might be, might've cheated on him. And as he starts to dig into kind of the stuff that she had and starts to investigate further sure enough and finds a video and then it really becomes about how that knowledge and finding out that this thing that he kind of built his life around it wasn't true and therefore his whole life just falls out and he just like self-destructs every aspect of his life over the course of a few days and this sounds like an interesting movie that i'm explaining because on paper i think that this is actually a good idea i think that if you directed this movie differently it would have been a you you could have had a movie on level with the other ones we're talking about today but the writer director so this guy wrote the story and made the movie yeah neither he, one of us is capable of saying his name i promise yeah. you <laughs> phonetically it's hilliner paul mason there you go so what he does is, all right i'm gonna try and like take my like personal judge, judgy feelings out of it and so <laughs> This is a story that's inherently about a man's emotions, and it's about him trying to deal with these emotions that are too powerful, which, great, get us in close, make us feel those emotions that he's feeling, and, and I'm with you, but instead the director pulls back, and it feels every single scene feels like he's trying to keep the audience at a distance, he's trying to be flashy and really stylistic with interesting shots where the focus isn't the character it's the building and people are moving around and lots of long takes and lots of stuff that on paper sounds like a great idea does not work with the story he's trying to tell at all there are only two times in the whole film where he ever pushes in and really tries to tell you what this character is feeling and those are the only two times i really felt connected to the character at all and so like, I ended up going through this whole movie just going like, I, I don't care, man. I really don't care about your characters. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I think we're exactly on the same point. And, you know, I asked for this because, look, this was a Icelandic entry for the best international feature film of the 92nd Academy Awards. It wasn't nominated, but you had, they're like, oh, well, it was pretty they good. Tried. 97% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 63 reviews. Usually when it's a movie like this, it's 97%. I'm like, oh, well, it's probably like seven reviews and they were all from like really niche. No, 63 reviews, 97%. So I'm like, oh, people are saying like a terrifying soul rattling character study. And I'm like, did they re-edit this completely <laughs> since we got yeah, to see it? You know what it is? They read the script. You know, I, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, the script is good. <laughs> It's so dull. Uh, and the second half, it gets better than the first because it but still, there's a point where you're just like, I don't even care anymore. I mean, I like the score. I think the cinematography is, is beautiful. But a lot of that is just great nature photography. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty place. Like, I, I, I just messaged you. I messaged you about this. How like this is the movie where for the first time in my adult life, I finally actually understand what pretentious is like <laughs> all of the style and all of the beauty and everything he puts into the, the director who i'm assuming is a guy but that's wrong with me who they uh put into this movie it it feels like it just means nothing it's just it's yolner that's a guy's name come on i, mean, I, I legit don't know i, don't know. I, I legit don't i'm know not either. going to assume their gender uh, no 
<laughs> what they choose to be identified as. That's fair. But yeah, sure. it's I, I guess if you're really super into indie film and you really like that cold, distant European style that exists, maybe I mean clearly there's a lot of people who find joy in this movie. Look, I don't see it. I could look not people get into this movie. I like Scandinavian slow burn police dramas. I do. I'm one of those people I can watch the killing, I can watch all that stuff and sit there and get really into it. Like I like that stuff. This was still just the most tedious thing ever. I, I, so if you're one of the people going, I don't know, this still could be for me. It probably isn't. Yeah. <laughs> just saying. Okay. Well, that's enough about that. I will say that there was a, the, the story as it is reminds me of something Paul Schrader would have written. Right. Yeah. Just, it does actually. Which obviously he probably would have done a better job directing it, but that brings us to our next film, which in fact is a Paul Schrader film that, I never had heard of, or at least had never had a chance to in any way come in contact with until now. Criterion has put out a Blu-ray of The Comfort of Strangers, which is actually one of the films directed by him. The screenplay is actually written by playwright, famous playwright Harold Pinter. Very well-known, big name. If Bo was here, he'd be like, Harold Pinter, oh, I love him. <laughs> Pinter's nipples. I don't know. So <laughs> I don't know what Bo does when there's play stuff. That's, I think, what he does. I do. <laughs> now I can just see Bo rubbing his nipples. That's all I see. I am so sorry that I did that to you. That was inappropriate as hell. I will you say right off they... the bat, I, I love the cover art on this thing, which is just absolutely gorgeous. Well, uh, criterion. And, and, and I, I must say, I'm excited to hear what you think about it, that the first thing you comment on is the cover art. There's no question that he's channeling European film. Uh, one critic I said I see compares him to Bernardo Bertolucci. And I see that. I I'm not that. the world's biggest Bernardo Bertolucci fan either. Sorry, I'm a terrible critic. I know. I mean, it's fine. I'm not the world's biggest Paul Schrader fan. Uh, like Ooh. American Gigolo. Uh, and... Uh, the new one that you I think you liked with Ethan Hawke was it first something I, I have not seen so okay. actually that was my revelation watching this so this movie was kind of a big thing for me one I really enjoyed it and I'm going to get into what I'm going to call the plot in a moment um, <laughs> but I for some reason back when I saw my first Paul Schrader film knowingly uh, hardcore in my head, because I was a college idiot, I thought George C. Scott was Paul Schrader, and like he had starred in his own movie. Don't, don't, just I, there, I can't explain it. Okay. And so, like, I was convinced that Paul Schrader is clearly dead by now, right? Because I mean, that movie was made ages ago, and he was up there then. No, lo and behold, Paul Schrader is alive and kicking and still making films today. And so I went down this rabbit hole today while watching this movie of like, oh, I want to watch that Paul Schrader movie. And I want to, I never realized he made that movie. And so like going and like getting all these movies set up. And so the reason why is because I really liked this movie. Uh, he made this while coming off of Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, which is... I keep meaning to see, but oh, yeah. it, it's it's in my top ten. It, it's totally pretentious art wank film, and I fucking adore it. I mean, there's it no question the guy it's about mind. is fucking fascinating as yeah. shit. But but so so this movie is it's a European vacation film, and and this is the other movie like Shanghai Triad that feels like two different genres mixed together, and so it follows a couple who aren't married. They, Let me they, say, Rupert Rupert Everett and Natasha Richardson. There you go. Who? It's always nice to see her in a movie. And I, I get sad because I remember her death for some reason. But like, I always am really excited to see Natasha Richardson show up in a film. Um, but she has children from a previous marriage. They've been together for a while, although they don't really live together. And they've gone on this holiday, which is such a European thing to get to do. Um, where they're basically trying to decide if their lives still work together. Um, and while they're on this holiday of self-discovery, they run into Christopher Walken and Helen Mirren, who kind of low-key stalk them throughout the movie and then uh, force a meet-cute and invite them over. 
and we watch as their friendship grows but there's always something off about walken and Marin. like they never do anything explicitly like out there except for maybe you know saying some really hom- homophobic shit initially yeah he's kind of awful but, but, but it's still like, like i don't know maybe they're just european we don't know um uh, well it turns out they're That's not they and so like, like this movie ends up being kind of a serial eh, kind of a serial killer movie kind of not really but from the point of view of the couple who are being stalked and and like Shane High Triad, I think this movie has the trappings of that crime film. And if you really want it to be about that, I think you're going to be very disappointed because like Shane High Triad, the crime elements of this movie are kind of underbaked and it doesn't really feel like that's what they cared about. That's just there. What yeah. what what the writer and director are really interested <laughs> in is this couple where their kids aren't there, the rules don't apply, they're on this kind of holiday and trying to understand each other, and they're going through this process of, should we be together or not? That's what the filmmakers are interested in, and they just so happen to be being stalked by creepy people at the same time. That's the problem, though, is that if this film appeared to be about anything, I would be patient with the fact that three-quarters of it is just this couple wandering around the same area in Venice and being very sort of, uh, I don't know, low key about everything. It's Christopher Walken, even for, I mean, it's Christopher Walken. It's impossible for him to be completely low key, but for Christopher Walken, he's pretty low key, except for his occasional racist, racist outbursts. But he's by far the most interesting person in the film because he's fucking Christopher Walken. Uh, This is the first time I've, and I, I know I just I haven't seen enough Walken movies, but this is one of the first times I've watched Walken where he hasn't been Christopher Walken. He's been like, did you, oh, I, I'm buying this character. You are. Did you watch this really late at night? I, I watched this earlier today. Why? Uh, OK, because then well, the way to watch it is late at night. As You know, it's like the old song goes walking after midnight. Sorry, I. But don't like, know why I, that was a thing I, I just get, did, and I apologize. I get where you're coming from. I, I legit about do, the song because I like I read Roger Ebert's review. It's it's a two and a half star. He comments on the exact same things you do. This movie has a sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a junk site, but it's still a nice general <laughs> idea to come up with how critics kind of thought about something. Uh, and, yeah. and like all, this is a movie more about paul schrader making a european film than it is about the actual story being told if you're not sitting there caught up in the cinematography and the dialogue and trying to really figure out like what the characters are saying what they really mean then yeah this isn't going to work for you at all yeah and it didn't really i mean it's a great transfer and there's parts of it that are pretty cool if for no other reason because venice in the 90s, and Christopher Walken, young again. It's been a while since we've I've seen young Christopher Walken in anything, although my favorite aspect of this whole thing is the bonus features. There's a 2020 interview with Walken where he has no fucks to give. He has not done anything to his hair. It looks like he just got out of bed, so his hair is like... Like eight, eight inches high. up in the air. He looks like he's getting ready for his Tim Burton film. Like, it's crazy. And he just does not give a fuck. Like, <laughs> and you know, him talking about him trying to do the accent for this character, which admittedly he's horrible at in this movie. It comes and goes. And even he's like, yeah, it was, I should never be asked to do accents. I'm so bad at them. So did you, so all the special features on this disc are a series of interviews with like the director, the writer, the original novelist, the script, the cinematographer, and most of the actors. Did you watch the Paul Schrader one? I did not. Okay, so I I ended up watching them all because, like I said, I I dug this movie. Um, And the best part about watching the Walken interview is that earlier, Paul Schrader talks about how they got Walken to have the accent he did. Because he went and he did all this work and came in with apparently like a half Texan, half Italian accent that was just garbage. And so Paul Schrader called up his contact in Italy and went, look, I need a aristocratic Italian figure who is royalty-esque, who is gay, is single, and this age. 
and she went cool this is his name like just had someone in his back pocket and went great can walk and go hang out with him for two weeks and just do whatever he does and just like <laughs> be friends and walk and like went out to eat with him and whenever the, this prince figure whenever and did anything walk and went with him and a couple of weeks later Walken apparently called Schrader up and was like, okay, we're good. I don't need to do it anymore. I got it. <laughs> and like, that's who he is, is this, this real Italian guy who they wanted to kind of cast, but couldn't because the dialogue is Harold Pinter dialogue. Well, I have a very special surprise for you. I'm glad you liked this movie. I have here for a special interview, the director, Paul Schrader himself. Are, are, are you ready? Of, of course. Yeah. Oh, oh Hello. <laughs> Does Hello, penis. And Does how are you? I, I hear you liked my movie, and I um, I wanna. Do you have any questions for me about it? <laughs> Go ahead. What? I'm I'm willing why, to talk why, about it. Why, yes, Paul Schrader, I do. Uh, oh my god, I don't. I don't. I, oh my god. I'm Come blind. on, you gotta have something. You just said you All liked right. it so much. All right, I do. I do. So, okay. See, you're asking for me a question. How cool is it that you made a movie that can be described as both sensual and sexy? Which, here, I, I'm going to go on a rant. I don't care that you got your little fuzzy thing sitting there. I'm going to go on a rant. What? Fuzzy so, thing? I don't, I think how does I he know have, I'm naked? I think I may have talked about this on the show before. Uh, but I know that it's been something that I've talked about with my friends. So uh, there's this thing that's happened with filmmaking over the last 20 years where when we handle nudity or sex or sexuality in modern American cinema, this is specifically America, it tends to go one of two ways. It tends to go either super gratuitous and vulgar. And it's like, yeah, boobs and butt. And it's a joke. Or it goes super corny, slow-mo, you know, a fade in to someone touching her hair and a fade in to a butt. that's a stunt, butt. Uh, yes, I, I cast that like, stunt, butt carefully, there you go. All nudity is handled that way. And so what this movie was and probably why I dug it so much is this movie is quote unquote sexy. Paul Schrader described it uh, in his interview as sensual. Uh, he wanted hmm. sensual camera movements. I was um, kind of high. But, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's valid. It was the right era. But. I don't this remember. movie is sexy. The camera moves slow. It it takes time to appreciate the beauty. When the characters get into this really kind of long rambling conversation in a restaurant, the camera doesn't sit with them. It cuts and it moves away and looks at other people and who are beautiful and interesting and courting in the restaurant. Uh, and, and even there's a scene later on where the act, Natasha Richardson and the, the boyfriend whose name I can't remember, Chris, Rupert Everett, Rupert Everett. Come where on, they, man. I thought you said you liked this movie. What the hell? They, what I, did you, what did you, they, I thought you hey, said hey, this guy hey, was look, an expert look, in the film. Let me finish. Let me finish. Okay, um, but it, it's where they wake up in Christopher Walken's house naked. And, it's worth noting only because in 36 years of being the person on this earth, I have never before watched a movie uh, where I feel like they've actually captured how a couple acts like Natasha Richardson wakes up. She doesn't immediately pull the sheets up to cover herself. They're comfortable and they're just sitting there and it's just a very natural scene. And it felt like a couple. And that almost never happens in movies where the couples actually feel like they're together. So that's my rant. This is a sexy movie and we should make sexy movies more often. You didn't understand my work at all. Wouldn't it be great if life was really like that? <laughs> so I am just calling I'm back Annie Hall. Were there. I'm calling back Annie Hall. I'm sorry. <laughs> By the way, Paul Schrader is bad and he has to stand in the corner now. Not the real Paul Schrader, the, the fuzzy Paul Schrader that tried to kill Chris while I was ranting. No, no, I, I really didn't like First Reformed. I don't care what anybody says. He has to stand in the corner until I tell him he's done. I still I still haven't seen it. It's on my You'll list. probably love it like everybody else. God I damn will. it. Uh, all right, let's move on to our last movie, which I am shocked to pieces that I enjoyed as much as I did. Really genuinely was going, all right, well, I guess let's give this a shot. It's Brian Trenchard Smith who 
regularly has been listed on like, you know, the worst filmmakers ever made type things or the weirdest filmmakers ever made. And recently he's kind of been reexamined and he should be. He's made some films that are genuinely fun, like Dead End Drive-In in in 1986 and BMX Bandits in 1983 and even uh, Stunt Rock from 1978, which is a bad movie, but a super fun movie to watch. He he also (laughs) um, directed a few episodes of Mission Impossible, the 1980s remake. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he uh, did crappy stuff like Leprechaun 4 in space. And, you know, I mean, a bunch of the Leprechaun movies, like two or three of them. But in Australia, where he's from, the whole Ozploitation cycle, he did a couple good ones in a row. And this is one of those ones that just never really, like, came over here or was pushed over here that was originally called Frog Dreaming, (laughs) which might be why they didn't choose to push it over here. But they've kind of retitled it for the American audience, The Quest. The Quest. And it's got Henry Thomas in its lead, who was the lead role Elliot in Extraterrestrial. And this isn't that long after that, you know, uh, we just recently played one of the leads in The Haunting of Hill House on, on Netflix. If you got a chance to see that, which I certainly hope you had by now. And this is a kind of adorable, like, boy going through, like, coming of age story with this boy who is a skeptic and really into science, but not in a dick way. But he's kind of like, you feel like if he met the right kids, he'd be in the Goonies, right? Everyone in town fucking hates him, which (laughs) was really confusing to me. Because, like, there's even a point of... There's even a point in the movie where the sheriff tells his adoptive dad, like, yeah, these girls are smoking and doing all these bad things, and it's because they're hanging out with your boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's a. it's because, like, for one, he's American and he's in Australia, too. His parents are dead. He's living with his guardian. He's also weird by anyone's standards at that time. He he invents weird shit, like big elaborate inventions. Like, he's going to grow up to be Doc Brown from Back to the Future. He's smart and he asks questions, which means mm-hmm. he's annoying to parents in this generation. Like, exactly. Nowadays, that, yes, I think he would it, play exactly. better. But back then it was like, shut the fuck up and go away, kid. We don't like you. <laughs> so there's a bit of like people like exploring Aborigine myths of Australia, which is, you know, interesting. And it more or less is just there to set up the is something happening with monsters or is there a scientific explanation for this? And it has to do with a lake that keeps erupting in bubbles with this thing that comes out of it and people appear to be dying because of it well the kid's like i'm gonna figure out what happened because basically no one else wants to talk to me anyway <laughs> and he's also like kind of he's formed this friendship with local girl wendy played by rachel friend and it's all too adorable and what's weird about it is like you just as much as you see films with this kind of out on the outside on paper the scenario you never see one do it quite the way this one does it and the way that it's like, oh, it's this kid trying to disprove uh, superstition by using science and reason. And at the end, it kind of wishy-washies it a little bit. You know, it's like, well, I don't know, maybe there's some superstition in there, but which is fine. But I kind of loved as someone who's really into this type of realm of thought, I kind of love that they did that and made it feel adorable and nostalgic. And I genuinely really enjoyed the shit out of this thing. I thought it was okay. Oh, like, God it, damn it. it. It was mostly <laughs> enjoyable. It, You know what it was? Is it's, It felt like the family-friendly version of like an understated slight film where like not a lot happens, but it's that's okay. It's really just kind of more of getting out of your normal pace of life and just kind of falling into the pace of the movie. But that being said, I watched this movie with my son who I'm curious about this has asked me three times to watch it again. Now no like, shit. timing hasn't worked out, but he loved this movie. He was into it. And, wow. And like, w- I'm so is, happy to hear that, which is honestly ignore everything. I said, this is a family movie. The kids like it, which is all that matters. Um, and, and like, I kind of wanted them to, I, I kind of wanted more to happen. I wanted either more to happen with the the townspeople, so there was more of an arc there. Like it, it really felt like once you move beyond this very interesting kid character and his legitimately interesting adventure trying to figure out what is in the water, like nothing else happened. I, I just like wanted I wanted to be plot. Um, I guess. 
Yeah. We're like, where's the ninjas? <laughs> so, <laughs> In Australia. Yeah. It, it, it was a really enjoyable movie. It felt like, uh, no, no, just, it's an enjoyable movie. Like, like I, I would recommend this to kids who are old enough that they can watch a movie that isn't just flashing colored lights. But, you know, parents may, may or may not find it a little bit wanting. I mean, like for me, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak to that particular aspect of being older, but we're both older. I'm a lot older. Maybe it's like because this was from my generation when I would have been like the age of Henry Thomas, basically, when this came out in 1986, maybe a little bit older. But I found myself kind of getting like never being bored i loved the sort of every time the thing started coming out of the water you're like what is that thing and the movie kind of sets you up to go all right so there's got to be a scientific explanation because you wouldn't set up all this other stuff if there wasn't and sure enough there is and i found myself really getting into that as the pieces of the start to come together and i think there's a really exciting last act to it as uh, henry thomas himself disappears and everyone's like holy shit what happened how do we find him like I really liked all that. I Like I said, for me, this really connected. And I'm so glad your kid liked it because I think ultimately its message is like when you encounter something that everybody's going, you it's a boogity boogity. Don't, don't head straight to the boogity boogity. It, it, it's probably something else. And think rationally. I think maybe I wanted it to be a boogity boogity. Yeah. Which is weird. Like when I watch kid, like family films made now. I'm very aware of the message that they're trying to send. And I'm like, okay, the message was good. So I will put up with a lot because I love the message. Maybe it was because this is an older movie or because I I wanted there to be something more spiritual about it that, yeah, I I was a little disappointed with what it ended up being. Sorry, you didn't get your paranormal fix. Don't worry, that ghost that constantly keeps appearing behind you when you're recording, I'm sure will sooner or later let itself be seen by you. It's the, scaring the shit out of me right now. That huge scar across its face Fuck, and the know, way it keeps almost putting its hand over your head. You're, you're just joking. Like, I hope you're just, joking. Jesus like, Christ. Just but hand is hovering right over your head, like right now. And it never actually makes contact. It's fucking weird. And I wonder what honesty, it would mean if it did. I had a Zoom meeting earlier today, and the person who I was talking to was having construction done. There was an open window, and a gust was coming through that wasn't normally there, and it blew the door open on its own four times in a 30-minute call. I was a little freaked out. Oh, I I'm not like reenacting some Shutter horror movie right now. No, I'm going to leave. You handle your problem on your own. <laughs> well, there's an audio commentary here with the director and the editor and the costume designer uh, and the director of the really wonderful documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, The Wild Untold Story of Ozploitation, which I deeply recommend if Great you can find it out there. It's occasionally showing up on various streaming services. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is on Shutter. There's Depth of a Legend, looking back on Frog Dreaming, which still baffles me they ever called it that, but it's a featurette where Brian Turgeon Smith visited Henry Thomas in Oregon, and they go back and they talk about their work on this. Uh, and then there's the Go Kids, looking back on Frog Dreaming, which is uh, talk about working on this back when. And then uh, there's shooting locations revisited. There's the U.S. opening title, which is different, and a trailer. But yeah, this is uh, solid. But I think both of us are going to come down to what our pick of the week being Lucky Grandma. Am I wrong? Uh, this has been Digital Noise. We'll be back very soon, Aaron and I, with more. John is also coming up on one again, if you haven't heard from him in a while. And we'll just leave you with these two words specifically for Aaron. Seven days.